Can there be anyone not shocked and appalled by Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine? A war intended to extinguish Ukraine as an independent nation. A war in which it appears that war crimes are not just being tolerated by the Kremlin, but actively encouraged. A war intended to establish that the only laws that apply in the world today are those of the jungle. Well, the answer is yes. Such people prefer to call themselves realists or restrainers or retrenchers or anti-inventionists or people who just want to prioritize nation building at home. Objectively, I think they are isolationists and we find them on both the left and the right of the political spectrum. That's one of the topics I'm eager to discuss today with FDD senior fellow Aaron McLean. Aaron served as a U.S. Marine for seven years, deploying to Afghanistan in 2009 and 2010. He was in the faculty of the U.S. Naval Academy, where he was the 2013 recipient of the APGAR Award for Excellence in Teaching. Aaron received a BA in Philosophy and the History of Math and Science from St. John's College, Annapolis, and an M. Philosophy in Medieval Arab Thought from Oxford. He has been a Boren Scholar and a Marshall Scholar. And he served as Senior Foreign Policy Advisor and Legislative Director to Senator Tom Cotton. I'm excited for the chance to sit down and talk with him today. I'm also excited that you joined us for this conversation here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. And I, I gave a quick rundown of your background, but it's an unusual background. So I, I want you to tell us a bit more. I mean, when when you were serving as a U.S. Marine in Afghanistan and like there was a lonely action, did you light up a cigarette and say, you know, Sarge, if I get out of here alive, I'd really like to study medieval Arabic thought. <laughs> and, and maybe the sergeant said, really, sir, because I'm thinking of studying French Impressionism at the Sorbonne. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting trajectory. Tell us a little more about it. Well, first, Cliff, uh, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm, I'm a big fan and I'm delighted to uh, to join you here for this conversation. Um, I guess the truth, in a way, is stranger than what you described because <laughs> I am um, I I had actually already studied um, medieval Arabic thought. I was an old man uh, when I joined the Marine Corps. I was 25 uh, when I went to officer candidate school, which for you know. Uh, a, a brand new second lieutenant is pretty, um, pretty old. Yep. Um, and uh, uh, I had done my graduate work prior to that. Um, and, you know, this is the peak of um, the peak of the fighting in Iraq, actually, is when I went through training in Quantico. Uh, my Arabic was pretty decent at the time. I'd been doing it on and off for about eight years. I'd lived in the Middle East um, uh, and I, I joined to, to serve. Um, and it, it may or may not surprise you to hear that in, you know, seven years, um, uh, not only did I not deploy to Iraq, I did not set foot in an Arabic speaking country. <laughs> I don't, I don't even think I overflew the Gulf or anything like that. Maybe, maybe that on the way back from Afghanistan, but went to Afghanistan instead, um, had a, um, 
uh, a, a hair raising time there as a lot of folks did. This is, you know, sort of the, the my battalion was the first to deploy as part of President Obama's surge. Um, and we were the main effort in, the, in a major operation in Helmand province um, that was sort of directly downstream of that um, that decision. Um, but yeah, no, all the the esoteric um, uh, study and philosophy had occurred um, at that point. What I actually was thinking, it's funny because, you know, I, I, my dad was a career military officer and I didn't mm. I didn't intend to stay in for the for the long haul. And what I was actually thinking was, I, you know, when we're back, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm, I'm out, I'm going to grow my hair long and, and sleep in in the mornings. And so when the battalion executive officer sent around an email saying what all you lieutenants want to do on your next, you know, tour of duty, I thought, well, I know I'm getting out. So, you know, what's the most ridiculous pie in the sky thing I can ask for? Uh, and I responded, sir, I'd like to teach at the Naval Academy. <laughs> Very respectfully, Lieutenant McLean, which if you know Marine culture at all, that that's like a borderline disrespectful email. <laughs> um, and then he wrote me back 30 seconds later and said, it's so funny you should mention it, Lieutenant. The Marine administrative message with the available positions just came out. You should apply, et cetera, et cetera. So I ended up staying in for you know three more years to do that. But um, that's, uh, that's that's the truth of it. Oh, that's, fa- that's fascinating. Although I'm, I'm a little... It, it shakes my confidence that you're speaking Arabic and we have a conflict going on in an Arabic speaking country and they don't think it's, it's like when I was at the New York Times, you know, I spoke, uh, I was a reporter. They wanted to send me abroad. I spoke, I said, my Russian's pretty good. My Spanish is passable. They said, great, we'll send you to West Africa. Yeah. <laughs> why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. 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 The, the Marine Corps doesn't really care what the, what the second Lieutenant, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, has, has, uh, has extra on top of what he's learned at Quantico. It's what he's learned at Quantico that they really care about. All right. To, to the subject at hand, I mentioned that there are isolations across the political spectrum. So let's take a walk along that spectrum. Okay. So on the left are those who think America only does terrible things overseas or when it uses force and at home, of course, uh, as well. And they think that the stronger our military is, the more likely it, our military will be used. So, so let's keep it weak. Let's not spend money besides we have other things to spend it on. Give you an example, the Democratic Socialists of America, which is an organization that includes uh, among its members, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Cori Bush, Jamal Bowman, issued a statement earlier this year, end of January, I think it was, um, as the Ukraine crisis was heating up saying, quote, no to NATO, and its imperialist expansion and disastrous interventions across the world. And then I would say Democrats, not so far the left, not so woke as the Democratic Socialists, might not endorse that. But they'd like America to be more like Switzerland or a, or a Scandinavian country. Although, you know, such people might be upset to see that both Finland and Sweden are now seriously contemplating joining NATO. So maybe Denmark is more the model. But here's the thing. Can Denmark be Denmark if the U.S. is not the U.S.? Yeah, that's that's um, that's exactly the problem with that that point of view. Um, uh, our European allies uh, enjoy an umbrella of security provided by the United States, um, which allows them to spend more on their um, you know their social programming than they otherwise might, and enjoy a lifestyle that they otherwise might not be able to. Um, and the United States is not Denmark for, for in a, in a variety of important respects. Not least important of which is our our, our literal geographical position, our scale, um, uh, our place on the globe, um, which um, gives us um, both vulnerabilities and responsibilities um, that that are unique, and which any other country that happened to occupy this land ma- mass would also have, but which also for us are are mingled with our 
you know, our, our unique history as an originally revolutionary power dedicated to a particular conception of natural rights, um, all of which makes American foreign policy, American foreign policy. I, I agree with your conception of, of the far left and their, um, the, the way in which um, they see America as essentially a force for bad in the world. And so therefore it follows that we ought to be less of a force in the world. And, you know, net the net amount of good increases, they would flip, of course, immediately if we were a socialist party. There, there is no necessary connection, uh, sorry, a socialist nation. There is no necessary um, connection between the left and pacifism. Um, the reason why the left has as often as not taken a, a sort of pacifistic, non-interventionist approach into their, to their um, view of American foreign policy is because they don't perceive the United States to be a left-wing or progressive force. Progressives can be very hawkish. Um, uh, the Soviet Union was quite was quite hawkish. Um, uh, so there's Xi no Jinping reason they couldn't be. They, they just aren't. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed, perfect example. Perfect example. I mean, in a way, the interesting thing is, um, in terms of recent developments, um, you know, the, the cutting aid, edge of isolationism is um, uh, not that long ago. I would have said, okay, so the, the left wing isolationists get to where they they are by saying that you know America is a force for bad. America is too evil to to lead in the world. And the right-wing isolationists sort of think, well, America's too good. The world, the world sullies us. And so we need to, you know, we need to, to kind of keep ourselves to ourselves, maintain our Republican virtue, avoid the imperial temptation, et cetera. But there's actually, there's a new, there, there's, there is something new on the sun, under the sun in right-wing isolationism that is almost kind of perfect. In, in a way, it's not, it's not even a mirror image. It's a replication of left-wing um, isolationism. There's a school of thought now emerging amongst, you know, when they, they're going by different labels, but you know, the, the new right nationalists, what, what have right. you Na- um, national conservatives you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. And I don't want to, you know, these labels are shifting and there are people who probably adopt these labels who actually don't think what I'm about to describe, but there are definitely people who think from the perspective of the right, that America is a force for bad in the world because it's too progressive. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. Right. We're flying pride flags from our embassies in traditionalist countries. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so they end up making a very similar mm. argument with respect to American foreign policy that America ought to come home, not in the traditional way that such an argument has been made from the right, but in fact, in a way that's very reminiscent of the left that we, that we are, you know, we and our agents um, abroad are, you know, essentially destroying the world. Um, and so the less of it, the better. I mean, it's the same argument as the left. It's just, um, uh, you know, predicated on a different, different substance, different understanding of what, um, what politics ought to look like. Well, and there are some, and now this is in the far right, I haven't gone through the spectrum um, properly, but who have also in the past and maybe in the present, you know, kind of looked sympathetically on Vladimir Putin as somebody who is uh, against wokeism, who is defending a Christian civilization and traditionalism, um, and uh, you know, it's not is not so bad. Now, maybe that's been reduced somewhat, but I, there are examples I can give you, uh, you know, uh, of 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 people on the right who have. T- I mean, Tucker Carlson has, I think, sounded sympathetic. Uh, Toward, toward, toward Putin. And, and some of these people have sounded pretty nasty when it comes to uh, Zelensky. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and again, I, the, it's, it's, it's a perfect um, sort of echo or replica of what, 
we had to deal with with the left. Not not me. I was a child as the Cold War was ending, but as as most people had to deal with at the time in the Cold War with the left running cover for Stalin and, and the worst excesses of the Soviet Union. Now you have elements of the right um, uh, running cover for what they perceive to be someone they perceive to be on their side, sort of philosophically and political in the form of, of Vladimir Putin and uh, criticizing his enemies um, like the Ukrainians. Um, you know, all of this, though, it's, it's worth making the point that um, these are relatively small groups of people. I mean, any policy debate sort of definitionally involves a relatively limited portion of the population um, and foreign policy, the, 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 the groups are even smaller. Um, and everyone is frequently prone to making the mistake that their sort of well-developed views on foreign policy somehow represent um, the natural American view or, or a view that's going to be popular or is popular. Um, I do think there are areas on the spectrum that, that tend to be more popular than others, given the moment. But, but um, just as it, I think it would be a mistake for those who favor American engagement abroad, as I do, to think that the American people are just naturally with you. The American people nat nat naturally want um, uh, to be involved in the business of, of far-flung countries and their, their various issues. It is similarly a mistake um, to assume that Americans just want, the, want our military you know, to come home and, and for us to have less to do with abroad. Neither, I think, is a fair depiction of, of where our democracy is. And to say where our democracy is at any given moment um, require some attention to the fact that, that time plays a role here and events play a role. The American people switch their views. Um, they were, generally speaking, when you pose them an up or down question on getting out of Afghanistan prior to Biden's withdrawal there, for it. They wanted out. It's kind of unsurprising. It didn't seem to be going very well. And, and no one, no president or, or senior leaders that have really clearly explained why we were there in a way that seemed compelling for years. So unsurprisingly, they didn't want to stick around anymore. Well, it turns out once we were out and once it was a disaster, it, what they really didn't want was for there to have been a disaster. They didn't want to be humiliated. They didn't want to feel unsafe. It's all very reasonable sort of public reactions to events. Um, uh, the American people are not as ideological as the participants in these policy debates. Um, and the participants in these debates regularly overrate the extent to which they can they can count on the support of the American people. Yeah, yeah, yes. And they can be swayed. And I'll talk about that in a second. But I'm curious to know, I mean, my view on Afghanistan had been that it should have been defended by some president and wasn't and defended, at least in this way, is that, you know, we were not engaged in a full on war there by the end. We were engaged in a low intensity conflict, which prevented the Taliban and Al Qaeda from achieving its goals. And that was worth doing. And if you could do that with 5,000 American troops and 5,000 NATO troops, I'd do it as long as is necessary. In the meanwhile, in Kabul, things were pretty good for a lot of people. Women were going to school. Women were serving the judiciary. People were learning about freedom. We have 28,000 troops in, 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 in South Korea and have had since that, that war ended in an armistice rather than in, in any kind of agreement. And of course, North Korea remains a threat and would be overrunning South Korea, as Russia is uh, under Putin, is attempting to do in Ukraine if the U.S. was not there. I My argument would have been, you tell me, feel free to disagree. You know what? If we need to keep 5,000 troops in Afghanistan for the foreseeable future. And we have a great base at, Bag uh, at Bagram that we can use for the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and our special forces are keeping the, uh, the, the Afghan military uh, effective. Let's do that. And if we want to get out, take a few years because it's going to that's what will be required to wean the Afghan military off the U.S. Because if you cut them off all of a sudden, what happened, of course, was going to happen. And plenty of people, 
including, for example, Bill Rojo here at FDD, were predicting that they could see that that was that was obvious. Is is that pretty much close to your view? We haven't discussed this before, I don't think. Yeah, I'm 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 basically with you in terms of where I was on policy. You know, in the in the lead up to this to this disaster, I I I thought it was um in some ways a tough call, but that but that we should stay. Um, we should stay for a couple of important reasons. The sort of hard-nosed, uh, the top of my list of hard-nosed reasons would be the counter-terror mission, which is, Afghanistan is just a different counter-terror problem than Somalia um, or Libya or Yemen um, for, for just a very obvious reason. And one should not overlook obvious reasons. It's just not easy to get in and out of, um, which is why Al-Qaeda was able um, to, I mean, Al-Qaeda enjoyed a kind of safe haven there prior to 9-11 um, in a way that was more challenging for them, for example, in Sudan. Um, uh, our counter-terror capabilities there um, have been radically reduced, obviously, by our departure, and that's going to be a problem going forward. Um, the second reason is China, um, uh, uh, both in terms of geographical proximity, um, but also, you know, I, there seemed to me to be a, like a fundamental paradox um, or, or confusion, maybe, at the heart of the argument um, that were being made, that was being made by those who favored sort of Asia first, American focus on China. Uh, let's disengage from as much as possible from the rest of the world. And Afghanistan is a great ongoing distraction. Um, one, of course, is the question of geographic proximity of Afghanistan to uh, to China. But but beyond that, border. <laughs> indeed, the other is um, it's, it's never clearly explained to me how um, the collapse of an American backed um, government and it's replacement by a narco terror state, <laughs> which has in the past been a sponsor of terrorism and very likely to be again in the future, how that improves the American security situation such that we can manage it and keep it in its proper proportion to our other commitments abroad um, rather than degrades it. Because to me, it seems pretty obviously to degrade it. But I will say, you know, and, you know, obviously you, you mentioned Bill Rogio's excellent work. I mean, FDD has, has been um, fantastic on these issues, you know. The fact that this was my view and, and remains, you know, my view um, uh, for what it's worth, um, you know, doesn't mean that I uh, endorse um, uh, sort of American policy writ large as it was as it was conducted in Afghanistan, you know, after 9-11. I, you know, obviously going there was was something that, that had to be done. But, I, you know, my political education honestly occurred in Helmand province in 2009 and 2010. Um, I was in a very rough neighborhood me and a you know a couple couple thousand of my my close friends um, called called Marja and I went I went as a a card carrying um, sort of uh, member of the uh, you know democracy of the freedom agenda uh, movement I, I I really thought um, when I showed up in Afghanistan that we were going to excise the tumor that was the Taliban and once the Taliban was removed. Um, local Afghan citizens would stand up and embrace what naturally all men and women want, which they want, they want the franchise, they want to you know, better their lives, access to markets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and democracy as a sort of natural form of government would flourish. Um, this is not what happened. Um, uh, I, and I learned the very, very hard way that this was a um, a very simplistic way of understanding how politics functions, how Southern Afghanistan functions. It's a place with, um, you know, virtually no female literacy. Um, you, you know, I, I don't have the stats to Helmand province to hand, but I would not be shocked to hear that it was, you know, less than 15 or so percent male literacy. 
um, immense poverty, immense poverty. You know, if you, people in Baghdad were upset after the American invasion because they didn't have any any power, you know, or, or you know, clean water for some time. You know, there is no power or clean water in Afghanistan. You know, the water comes from your well. If you have a well in your own courtyard in Helmand Province, you're middle class. So just this, the 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 scale of of physical deprivation that was the baseline um, for affairs there was was something that I had never witnessed before. And, you know, I just had to to come to realize that this was a world that was dominated by an overlapping series of, of mafias, essentially. The Taliban were a significant player in that network. All these networks had all of their kind of real politic negotiations with the members of the Taliban, who, of course, were you know funded and supported out of Pakistan. Um, and the way that the Marine Corps succeeded in pacifying the Helmand River Valley from 2008 really on it was lasted the, the pacification really lasted from about 8 to 12 by 12 it was really kind of locked in in a way that was sustainable in a way um was not what was publicly reported and what the American Department of Defense um, trumpeted which was that we had established the legitimacy of the Kabul government that's just not true we didn't um i i i i testify as an eyewitness that we we did not what we did was we paid everybody off um uh who we had to um, uh, to participate in our vision of security for, for the region. And these weren't necessarily, you know, sacks of cash. It was a little more sophisticated than that. There were all these programs where people would be in, in you know, the first one was interim security for critical infrastructure or ISKI, because, you know, we, we need acronyms for everything. There was a local police program. You know, there were all these different ways to enroll people and pay people. These people would then kick back to their, you know, um, you know, you say, you say tribal elder, I say, you know, local petty warlord. These are sort of um, uh, ma- matters of nuance. Um, and and then the Taliban would also get their cut before any of these guys cut deals with us. For the most part, they would go sit down and get approval um, because, you know, no one wants to get shot if they can avoid it. And so the Taliban were being funded by this as well. And they would conduct by the end of this process sort of demonstration attacks here and there to remind everyone that they were still around. But the president, President Obama, had already announced we were leaving. Um, so they didn't feel any particular sense of urgency. So we ended up in this position where there was a lot of money flowing and a lot of security bought with it. Um, and it was going to be sustainable as long as we stayed at some level and continued to send them money at some level. And it was very obvious that the moment those things ceased to be true, this thing was going to fall apart rapidly. And indeed, that's that's what happened. I want to get back to Ukraine, but let me ask you one other question on this. So where does that leave you sort of in terms of your understanding of what is the least bad, if not the best, uh, U.S. Uh, foreign policy, national security a- approach? I mean, the, the, it's obviously not a neoconservative in the in the sense that neoconservative means we are going to export democracy, and we shouldn't believe that the soils of foreign lands can't grow this this, this fruit. Um, but you know what? You know, I mean, <laughs> it's a big question, but I'll ask you to be fairly brief on it. What is that you see as what what should be our role in a place like Afghanistan? If we understand a, we can't make it into a democracy, and b, we're not going to be able to, you know, have zero Taliban. Uh, anyone you can have zero COVID. This, this flu is going to be around for a while. We just want to suppress it, suppress it. We're kind of where do you where where where, where does that leave you uh, from these lessons? Yeah, it's a, look, it's a big question, but in, in some ways, it's 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 the question. Um, in, in the Afghanistan specific context, you know, I think, I think this is just something hard for us to deal with in our politics. Um, in some ways, it was it was easier for the British when they occupied a similar position globally, um, because they were, you know, frankly, they were just less democratic um, than, than we are. Um, they 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 were comfortable. Their political culture um, was comfortable with 
you know, a certain level of, of security operations abroad that did not have to be understood in these sort of sweeping tones, these sweeping dramatic tones of, you know, democracy is at stake. You know, if, if we, if we fail here, um, you know, it's like failing in the second world war. Um, that's just not true of most military operations. Some of them are, are kind of operating in, in areas which are gray, both, both from a perspective of, um, of strategy and from a perspective of, of morality. There's not necessarily the sort of soaring soundtrack behind them. Um, and I think that was true of what we were trying to do in Afghanistan. If, you know, if, if we're, if we have a compelling interest, as I think we did at the end, um, uh, uh, in, on, on the counter-terror mission. Um, and if this plays a, a role as it does with the competition with China, which, you know, I can speak more about that as well. I mean, as you, as you know, Taliban's a function of Pakistani foreign policy by abandoning Afghanistan to the Taliban. We are effectively aiding Pakistan in its competition with India. Pakistan's aligned with China. India obviously is um, in tension with China. You know, we've done nothing to help ourselves with, with China by our departure. But these are not, you know, these are, these are sort of questions of strategy and security. Um, they are, they are not questions of, um, uh, that, you know, sort of stem from America's revolutionary core, you know, from, 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 from questions of the rights of man. And that's hard. I think it's hard for policymakers, not only to understand, but also to explain, um, to, to, a, to a population, to a nation, we are, we are a democracy. Um, we, we, you know, democracies famously, um, uh, are, are roused to military action. Um, because of perceptions of, of of threats and perceptions of injustice, well, it, it's 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 a more complicated case to make in places that are so far flung. That doesn't mean that it's not a case that's a true and be worth making. Right, right. Now, saying that I'm I I don't believe in the sort of neoconservative idea that you can export democracy doesn't mean I don't believe that you should not support Democrats where you find them. And I think on that. Um, Zelensky has been very has been a very interesting character. Uh, I'm going to just give two quotes that really back up what you were saying a bit earlier. Dan Henninger in the Wall Street Journal this week says that before February, it was an article of faith among prospective U.S. presidential candidates, especially Republicans, that they were obliged to respect America's desire to turn inward and away from the world. Suddenly, some 87 percent in a recent CBS poll say stopping Russian aggression is in the U.S. interest. And then we have Brett Stevens, in his most recent column in the New York Times, saying the following, Zelensky has shaken much of the United States out of the isolationist stupor into which it was gradually falling. He has forced Europe's political and mercantile classes to stop looking away from Russia's descent into fascism. Two, uh, two in- interesting uh, comments um, and I can think of a lot of questions, but if you want to, if, if, if something occurs to you to say about those, I'll let you before I zero in with got with questions. Well, gosh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, so there's, there's a lot there. I mean, on the, on the democracy question, and I don't want to linger on Afghanistan, but you know, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I, I, there's, there's nothing in the, you, you know, every, every human culture is capable of, of, of liberal self-government. There are just preconditions for it. They take time. They take certain kinds of institutions. They take a certain level of education. Um, uh, and so in the Afghanistan context, it's about, you know, the time you have a, a, a available and, and the time that we were willing to spend, which I don't think we were willing to spend the time that we, we needed in the Ukraine context. I mean, um, the, the principle of, of, of national sovereignty, national self-determination 
um, is one which generally and for the most part, the United States stands for. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a norm um, uh, that we have, have enforced. Um, uh, you raised when we were chatting earlier, um, President H.W. Bush's um, uh, uh, intervention on behalf of Kuwait. Uh, uh, right at the closing stage of, of uh, right after the, uh, the the conclusion of the Cold War, um, is setting an important tone um, for American leadership in the world. American leadership that was not purely about realpolitik. It didn't purely depend on the balance of power. It does, to, to be clear, it does depend on the balance of power. It does it does have a hard edge underneath it. But if you like, sort of out ahead of that hard power edge, there there is this. Um, uh, you know, these are there are these principles um, that are generally held to be just and, and, and legitimate. And one of them is national sovereignty. And if we allow that to decay, if, if it just becomes okay um, for a stronger, wealthier country to decide that its neighbor no longer gets to be a country for whatever reason, um, well, that is a, um, uh, that the, the world that exists after that successful effort is a less safe world. It's a world in which we are less secure. And it's a world where we are going to have to rely on the hard confrontation of force um, because the norms that were the sort of buffer out ahead of that force um, have dissipated. Um, and you would see um, similar things happening in the Pacific with Taiwan. We may, we may yet see it to be clear. Um, uh, but, but, it, but I, I guess if, if I'm going to draw kind of a, a principle out of that, um, that line of thought, it would be that for all the criticism that, that, that norms have, have gone in for in, in recent years. And I, by the way, I've, I've made some myself, um, and for all the, in some ways, well-deserved criticism of the of the quote unquote liberal international order, which you can easily repurpose um, Voltaire's old joke about the Holy Roman Emperor Empire and point out it's not not liberal, not not particularly orderly, maybe a little bit international, but you know, like you, you can easily make that joke. Um, the the fact is is that there are there are practical benefits. Um, there are ways in which this this order, these norms serve to enhance um, American security and in turn, you know, our, our freedom and our prosperity and that of all of our allies. Um, and I would argue the world at large, that it is all interwoven. Um, uh, and while not perhaps quite as quite as crisp um, and unsullied a thing as um, the liberal internationalists would, would like to like it to be, um, uh, it nevertheless is at stake question of Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, I might go a little further and you quibble with me if you want. The, the American project and maybe even the American purpose since World War II has been to establish to, to some extent the idea that there are international laws and international norms. And a very basic one is the one you, we just were talking about, that a big bullying power doesn't just get to say, you know what, my neighbor is not going to exist and I'm just because I don't want him to. You, there's no what Putin has been saying very clearly. There's no such thing as a Ukrainian. These are rogue Russians. They need to submit. That's the word he's used. And so I'm going to have a special military action to force them to submit. Once you establish that's it, that is, then we have accepted, okay, it's law of the jungle. It's muck politique. There are no, everything else is nonsense. It's almost that way. As you say, we have a UN Human Rights Council. Okay, Russia is now off it, but Venezuela is on it and Congo's, I mean, China's on it. Every terrible nation that violates human rights gets on it because it's convenient. The UN doesn't stand for anything. Really, we have two totalitarian nations uh, on the with veto power in the UN Security Council. I mean, at a certain point, we have to say, you know, this is all a figment of our imagination. 
we're paying for it. The Chinese are running it to a great extent. They, we pay 10 times as much for the World Health Organization, but they call the shots there. They know how to put their people in it. You know, we're lose, our, our vision is being destroyed. And so George H.W. Bush said, I'm not going to allow that to happen. It's not that I think Kuwait is a wonderful, he didn't say it this way, wonderful, lovely, democratic little society I want. He just said, you can't do this. Now, it's harder to do with Putin because he's got the world's greatest arsenal of nuclear weapons. He's got 10 times as many tactical weapons, nuclear weapons as we have. We didn't now, which gets into an interesting point, which is this, that I think, and I think you think, what Putin's invasion shows is we had insufficient deterrence of bad actors in the past. And we are we are dealing with an emergency situation because we didn't have the right policies in place earlier, by which I mean after 2008, when Putin took off two provinces from Georgia, after 2014, when he sliced off Crimea and went into Donbass, where he's been with a low-intensity conflict ever since, we should have been, among other things, saying to the Ukrainians, okay, let's give you the ability to uh, deter no, we're going to talk. We're talk I don't want to talk to this. Deter through denial. In other words, Putin should have said, "Oh my God, if I send troops into Ukraine, it's going to be a bloodbath for me." He didn't think that. He thought it was going to. It turned out to be. He thought it was going to be easy. But there should have been every way to say to him, "You don't want to do this. This would be a bad thing because if you don't have deterrence by denial, by suggesting this is, this is bad for you, you're left with deterrence by punishment, which means after the fact." You're going to say, okay, now we'll sanction you. Ha, ha, ha. Aren't you sorry you did what you did? That doesn't work. And then I'm going to add one more thing and, let, and then let you go on this because I know you, you, you're chomping at the bit. And that is the, new, the, the current administration is talking about something called integrated deterrence, which I think is another tooth fairy, another Easter bunny. It, it's something that doesn't exist. And I think in, in a way we know that from what's just happened. Yeah. All right. You go. Uh, well, here, let me, I'll start right at the end there. And then I want to, don't, don't let me forget. I want to skip back yeah. to, to the very beginning of what, of your characterization of, um, of sort of the American purpose in the world post-World War II. But to, just to start with integrated deterrence. Uh, yeah, I share your, um, share your skepticism. I think your characterization of it as a tooth fairy is a, uh, is a good one. It reminds me a little bit of the, um, the pivot to Asia in the sense that they both share this kind of, um, superficial kind of reasonability. You know, okay, pivot to Asia. Well, China. Who who really argues that China is not the preeminent threat to American security? I'm not familiar with too many serious people who do. Um, one or two I've talked to, but most people think China's at the top of the list. So, okay, fine. We're going to have some kind of okay, fine. I get it. it there's a, there's an argument to be made. We could quibble with with its dimensions, but it's there. Um, but it, when you actually got into the weeds of what the Obama administration was doing, and what you got when you got into the weeds of what they really were interested in. Um, it turns out what they were really interested in was leaving the Middle East, um, which they wanted for political reasons more than strategic reasons. Um, uh, and the pivot to Asia in many important respects was kind of cover for that. Um, similarly, with integrated deterrence, it's like, okay, well, I guess that beats non-integrated deterrence. You know, I, I would like in, in, in people to be deterred by all instruments of national power. Why would I choose not to deter with an instrument of national power if I could? Okay, so fine. Makes sense. But what it's really about, of course, is is reducing, uh, establishing a national, conducting national security policy in a way that reduces the role 
of the military and of hard power. We're going to deter not just with, um, you know, a threat of, uh, as you, you know, as you said, deterrence by denial through, through, you know, weapons and guns and troops, you know, depending on the circumstances, maybe even our, the presence of our troops and weapons. No, we're going to, we're going to deter, you know, through, through the threat of economic sanctions, through, through diplomacy, through this, through that, through the other thing. It's obviously, I mean, if this was the first, if this was the first trial, it's obviously not off to a great start. Um, and, you know, for all of the hubbub about the the crushing um, sanctions that were imposed on the Russian economy in the aftermath of the invasion a couple months ago now, gosh, we're up at two months now, um, uh, you know, Russia's muddled through the ruble, the ruble has come back, they have muddled through. So we threw not exactly the our best at them, but we threw a lot. Um, and it has, has definitively not turned out to be enough. Um, not only um, uh, has it not Cause the Russians to stop and turn around and go back. They have, you know, operationally around Kiev for for sort of military reasons because of the fighting spirit and courage of the Ukrainians. Um, but they're reattacking. They're they're proceeding um, in the east. This is not over. Some have argued, and I think they're probably right that we are actually now in some ways in a, in a, in a more dangerous phase than we were at the start. So that's that's on that's on integrated deterrence. If I just I, I just want to comment quickly on where you sort of launched off on this question of the American role in the world. Um, I, I, I agree with you. I think that um, uh, the, the construction and maintenance of a certain kind of order, which involves the rule of law, um, uh, has been at the center of the American project. I just think it's sometimes, you know, we can make that case and point that out um, uh, uh, and, and still struggle to explain to people, to Americans, why that's in our interest, why that's, why that's valuable. And there's another piece to the story that I think we should also point out. Well, why are we doing this? You know, why why are we out abroad? Um, you know, in some ways performing a role similar to the role that Britain played in the you know 18th 19th centuries, guaranteeing navigation of the seas and ensuring that there were certain principles of um, of, of of law that were that were applicable as universally as possible. Um, uh, well, because at core. Um, in America, we value our freedom and we value our prosperity. You know, we don't want somebody else to call the shots about how we live our lives and we don't want to be poor. Um, uh, and those things require security and to secure yourself on the North American continent um, uh, means also to secure your trade with other nations. And you can see where the logic is going from there. Um, we are in a position where um, as the first world war raged, we contemplated a, a world um, in which Germany um, the Kaiser's Germany would secure hegemony on the European continent. Meanwhile, Japan was a rising force in the East. Um, and we were contemplating a world where the Eurasian landmass came under the control of potentially hostile hegemonies. Um, and a, an American population that had at the start of the first world war wanted nothing to do with the thing. And were led by a president who was reelected on a campaign to keep them out of war. Woodrow Wilson found itself at war. Um, uh, and then having fought off the threat, um, uh, of, of a Eurasia that would, you know, essentially encircle and threaten the liberty of America and the, and the prosperity of America, we, we decided to wash our hands of it and come home. Uh, and the isolationist argument um, was powerful and supreme um, in the 20s and 30s. And so we then had to, as it were, go and do it all over again, except um, at an even higher cost um, uh, with even higher stakes in, you know, the, the worst war in human history. And, and even though we kind of wanted to come home at the end of that one, too, and in certain respects, kind of for a few years did, um, in the end, the Soviet Union's belligerence kept us abroad um, uh, in a way that I would argue has been broadly beneficial 
um, for the world and for America. So the, just that court, yes, we, we we are in the world. Yes, the rule of law matters. Yes, um, uh, yes to all of that. Um, but the, the 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 reason for it, in just sort of brutal geo, geopolitical terms, is that the United States would be at risk um, in a world where Eurasia, which is the dominant landmass of the globe, has the greatest war making potential of anywhere on the globe, were to fall under the control of a power or coalition of powers hostile to our interests. And that's what we have been trying to prevent for 100 years. There's an echo of what the Brits used to do um, with the European balance of power. Uh, in a previous age. Um, and that is our that is our task. I mean, if you did a thought experiment and said, let's suppose America elects a, a totally isolationist president and Congress, we're out of NATO, we're out of the world, we pull all our troops home. Wouldn't would not stop with Ukraine. He would go into the into the Baltics, he'd go through the Slavic. It would be over for Europe right now, because they're not prepared, the Europeans, to defend themselves, it seems to me, without US support. And that would be the and and China would go into Taiwan and then Pan and we would be a, an island, maybe a democratic island, but we, uh, maybe an island of freedom. But that's all we'd be surrounded, and maybe we'd last the way I don't know the way Constantinople lasted for a, for a thousand years after the, the fall of Rome until eventually we'd be taken we'd be taken over. And of course we we would continue to have fights in, internally as as we are, and they're pretty bad fights over the meaning of freedom and democracy and human rights. Anyhow, we can sort of um, imagine that. What one which it brings me to this, I think you'll see the the nexus. The, a lot of the those who I guess I would call isolationists talk about oh forever wars. We have to stay out of forever wars. The most just this, if you have any acquaintance with world history at all, you know that war is the norm and peace is the exception. And when you have peace, it's usually because you have one really strong power in the world that keeps the peace. That's the meaning of the Pax. Romana or the Pax Americana, as we talk about it. If you don't have that, you do not have peace because, I mean, the history of the world is the history of wars, mostly among empires. And that's the other thing. And, and you know, empires are created through bloodshed. I don't can't think of an empire created through, through democratic means. And I think that's part of what Putin knows and what Xi Jinping knows. And I and my view is that both of them are intent on creating empires. I mean, that's my been my analysis of Putin for years and years and years, and I've been following him for a long time. I I went to the Soviet Union as a teenager. I don't know if you know, and that's how he sees himself as a czar and his mission. And I mean it, his mission, his legacy is to reunite the Russias by force if necessary, and it is by force if necessary because. I was in uh, Ukraine for the last parliamentary election. The pro-Russian party got 13.5% of the vote. People didn't want that. So he's got to do that. And then he's also pan-Slavic. So he would go into Moldova. He would go into Serbia. He would go into as wherever he can. But that's, that's his job. He has everything else money can buy. This is what he wants is this legacy. And I think he thought, I've got to do it now. America is weak. Look what they did in Afghanistan. Look how the world didn't care what. Xi Jinping did to Hong Kong, defying a treaty obligation. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting any younger. Let me get this job done. I've been talking about it for a long time. I think that's what's, what's going on. But the people who say no forever wars don't simply don't understand the, the, the basic dynamics of, of geopolitical reality. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, avoiding forever wars is a, is a slogan and it's a slogan with some appeal. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've seen it have sort of potency in, in American politics, but it's not, um, it's not a particularly realistic assessment of policy. Um, uh, it, it's, it's in a, in a way, a, a, a bumper sticker that, that, describes isolationism look nobody wants nobody wants war certainly nobody wants war for war's sake no 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 um no member of a liberal democracy i I actually will clarify that there are people who want war for war's sake but liberal democracies generally speaking are kind of built to suppress that aspect of human nature and and you know i certainly don't want war um the question is um uh you know what what are your what are your strategic objectives you know, what are you trying to preserve? I've I've nominated our freedom and prosperity um, as as what fundamentally we are trying to preserve. What are the threats to them? Um, uh, how are you managing those threats? Um, and if your objective is simply the avoidance of war, what I would predict is that eventually you will find yourself in a war um, at a much greater scale and on terms much less favorable um, than you might have faced if you had confronted whatever the problem was earlier. Um, in a in a way, I think that that is what we are dealing with in in Ukraine, um, uh, and that is why I'm grateful for for all of the flack that it has taken over the years. And in some ways, the proponent, you know, the, the transatlantic proponents of of NATO are, are are not always their own best friends in the ways that they make the case for NATO or have made the case for NATO. There can be a kind of liturgical quality to it, um, a, a way in which it's phoned in. Um, well, it turns out NATO has a very important purpose, um, uh, which is eminently clear here again in the spring of, of 2022. Um, uh, and I'm grateful that it's there. I'm grateful that it exists. I'm grateful that the United States is an active player in European politics um, or European security um, via NATO. Um, and, and Ukraine Ukraine is an important calling of the question of the future of Europe. Um, and it's important that it be answered in the right way. I mean, two achievements of Vladimir Putin. Uh, that are inadvertent is one that he has uh, put Ukrainian patriotism, if not nationalism, on steroids, and two that he has revived uh, NATO from its torpor. Uh, that said, uh, this really does puzzle me. I don't. Under, I don't. I'm not able to foresee how this war turns out. In other words, I don't see. I don't see uh, Putin winning. But I don't see him being defeated and expelled. So does that mean we end up with a frozen conflict or is there something else I'm not, uh, you know, some other alternative I'm not seeing? Yeah, I mean, well, I think it's imperative um, for for us, for America, for the West, for Ukraine, that Putin not succeed in any straightforward way, that he not take Kiev, that he not seize the country. We, we must prevent that. But as you as you point out, and I fear you're correct. Um, the notion that the Ukrainians are going to liberate the already occupied portions of of the Donbass, or they're going to retake Crimea, uh, well, I mean that could well provoke. Um, I mean, frankly, it could provoke a nuclear response, a tactical nuclear response from Putin. Um, uh, and we need to contemplate what that would mean. Um, what that would mean uh, on the battlefield for Ukraine and for Ukrainians, and what it would mean for the future. Um, for the future of war, uh, it, and it comes back to these questions of norms. You know, when you rip the bandaid off something like that, what comes next? You know, so um, you know we are um, we are engaged in a uh, in a fight here with a nuclear power, um, and that just change it just changes the question. Um, it's why it's, it's 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 we should prevent Iran, for example, from developing nuclear weapons um, because we don't want to find ourselves in these kind of awful quandaries like we do in Ukraine, where 
you and I, no friends of Vladimir Putin or Russian interests are sitting here discussing how it's probably not realistic that they actually completely get run out of the country because the consequences of that might actually be worse um, than something uh, something that involves more of a more of a compromise. Yeah, this is yeah, this is pretty tricky. Do you, do you have a, a, any sense of I mean, the Battle of Donbass in the east there is really just getting underway as we're recording this. Uh, um, I, I, I mean, I think a lot of different things could happen in, in terms of the battle. I mean, uh, the uh, the betting is probably for Putin in this case. But again, the betting for Putin has been wrong in the past. So I don't know for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, some of the reporting on this just makes me roll my eyes a bit. Um, you know, you saw, there's a there's a, a string of stories um, from the last week um, as as Putin and the Russian military were turning their attention to these saying, oh, well, you know, that. You know, we're now turning to a conventional fight with, you know, with tanks and wide open spaces, not the sort of more guerrilla type fighting you saw, you know, around Kiev. And I thought to myself, I don't think it would look like a pretty conventional fight to me around Kiev. Like, sure, the terrain probably favored the defender a bit more than it does out east. It is the case that these flat spaces, um, uh, uh, you know, do favor the, um, you know, the, the better provision military um, but, you know, but hey, provision ain't everything. And the Russian military has, you know, embarrassed itself um, very significantly um, uh, in the last couple of months. Um, the operations that they are attempting to conduct now in the east are vast in their scope. I have heard it asserted and I, I have not seen any good evidence to contradict the fact that these are the, you know, in terms of their scale, the largest operations um, certainly that Russia has conducted since the Second World War and, and possibly, you know, just period since the Second World War. Um, uh, in terms of geographic area and the level of coordination required amongst corps and armies, I mean, it is okay, fine. So the terrain is more favorable um, to the um, to the to the you know, the modern military on offense. Uh, you know, the the Ukrainians, properly equipped, properly supported, have done well, um, and I I'm not I am not counting them out, and I think it is in our interest and in the world's interests um, that the Russians be fought to a halt. Right. Um, a lot of other items on my list here, but I'm not going to get to them all today. I know. So let me, let, maybe this will be the, our last, our last topic for today. And that is, you know, during the cold war or to use Matt Pottinger's phraseology, cold war one, uh, we fought against the Soviet union and communism. And the communism was a very well, is a very well developed ideology, right? Uh, in cold war two, which is different in some ways from Cold War One, but Matt Pottinger would say it's been declared on us. Of course, instead of Russia being the senior partner and China being the junior partner, it's the other way around. Russia's the junior partner to China, and uh, and 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 the Iranians are the junior partner even more so. But what is Putinism? Is it, I mean, you know, is it an ideology? Is it a form of fascism? You recently did a very interesting podcast. I recommend it to people with Walter Newell, who's sort of the world expert in tyranny. That's what he, he studies tyrants and tyranny. Um, and um, he talked, you talked to him a little bit about this. It, it's, it's tricky because fascism is used, you know, it's what people call anybody they don't like, but they're actually, but, but it does have a meaning. You, would you, what, what would you say Putinism is? Let me ask it. Yeah. I mean, so the short answer is yes, it is very clearly a form of, 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 of fascism, which is a kind of, you know, it's a right wing totalitarianism um, that is about the reclaiming of the lost glory of a people, right? Um, uh, uh, it typically has ir- irredentist goals, 
um, uh, which Putin certainly has in, in, in the traditionally Russian parts of Ukraine. Um, I mean, kind of all of the monikers of it are, are there. I mean, there are ways, and this is Waller New is a brilliant guy and a wonderful analyst and, and political philosopher and has been very influential in the way I think about the world. I mean, there, there is an aspect of Putin, as he points out, that is a much more traditional kind of scummy kleptocrat authoritarian without particularly ideological, you, you know, um, qualities. And there, there seems to be a kind of negotiation within Putin and almost a kind of evolution from the authoritarian to the totalitarian over the course of his over the course of his rule for reasons, you know, that you were, you were sort of speculating on, on, on earlier. I mean, what he, what he also is, um, is, you know, he's a very, um, alas, at this point, familiar type of figure, which Newell, you know, he's written now a series of books on tyrants. Um, he's a kind of figure that is just hard for, for, for people in the West, for Westerners or, you know, small liberals or call us what you want to call us. Um, we, we are, we are traditionally, the historical record shows we are very bad at recognizing these people for what they are, whether it's Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping or Mao or Hitler or, you know, whoever. Um, uh, we we typically think um, uh, until it's much too late that they are reasonable people who will behave rationally, who fundamentally want the same things out of the world that we do. You know, they want they want freedom and prosperity, right? Just just like a we do. A good 401k so, and a Bethlehem healthcare system in Eurasia, right? Send, yeah. send the kids to college, et cetera. You know, so actually, there might, I could take it back to my <laughs> Afghanistan experience where I um, was once having tea with a um, a Taliban commander. That was a funny sort of war. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, he was an interesting guy. Um, and unlike, you know, most of the, um, the local mafiosi who I, I tended to deal with, he, he didn't appear to obviously be a crook or a grifter. Um, and, um, he had these pale gray eyes and I was still, it was early in the deployment and I was still sort of reciting these talking points that we were given, um, uh, along the lines of, you know, he had his, he had his kid there. He has this 10 year old kid, um, uh, with us at the, at the meeting in his very lovely tea garden. Um, and, uh, I, I said to him, you know, you have your son here. Don't you want him as you did to go to university one day? This guy was from a sort of prominent Afghan family. His father had been in the Afghan parliament. Um, back uh, back when there was such a thing. Um, don't you want your kid to go to to Pakistan, go to university, have a profession and a good life? And he looks at me with these sort of steely gray eyes and he says, you know, in 10 years, my son will have died fighting in the jihad. Um, and there is, there, is a, there is a gap between the way that, you know, sort of your normal average American looks at the world and the way that this guy looks at the world. And that's, out um, of his, and, and that's because, let's be honest, because he's a man of faith. Because he believes this is this is what he this is the his duty and his son's duty is to fight and die in this jihad uh, against the infidels like you and against uh, the domination of the arrogant powers of the West. I mean, this is a matter of of belief, not uh, not ambition. Am I right? Of course, and, and there is a way in which you know modern modern Islamism, you know, sort of jihadism is a fascist ideology with very similar dimensions to what we were discussing in the form of Putinism. You know, it's about reclaiming the glory of um, not exactly a, a great people in an ethnic sense, but a sort of supra tribe in the form of Islam um, uh, about re- reclaiming their lost glory, restoring them to the prominence um, that they deserve um, a self-sacrifice of, of asceticism. I mean, these are all sort of traits of, of, of fascism. Um, uh, and it can take on different substance and different content. Um, and this guy, um, and to an extent Putin, um, uh, you know, both, both subscribe to the same, you know, alas kind of common form of, 
of, of, of humanity and, and of politics. And, and we in the West, just, we just struggle. We struggle to recognize it for what it is until it's too late. We, we've made this mistake again and again and again. The reasons we do, I mean, they're complicated at the most superficial level. It's because we live a life of, of prosperity. Our politicians come up through systems where the stakes are not. If you lose, you die. You know, they are they are not necessarily prepared for dealing with folks who have come up in systems where those are the rules. Um, you know, and at a deeper level, and this is something that Waller Newell has written brilliantly about, um, you know, there's something about the structure of, of liberalism itself, of Western Western politics writ large, where, you know, it begins with these writers like Hobbes. Um, these these original theorists of the um, of the of what becomes the liberal democratic project, um, and Hobbes has to kind of suppress um, for his project to succeed certain aspects of human nature, um, uh, and he makes this case that man is properly understood as a you know as a as a kind of rational animal, and the the, the 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 common denominator on which we will found our politics is a fear of violent death. All humans fear violent death. So we are going to leave the state of nature and enter a social contract where we give up some of our rights of perfect freedom so that we can avoid these awful violent deaths. That's fine um, as far as it goes, um, but there are there are problems with it as an account of human nature. I'm a, I'm a I'm a partisan of the politics that it um, uh, it produces, and I I've sworn an oath to the U.S. Constitution, which I intend to adhere to to my dying breath. Um, but as an account of human nature, it leaves some things wanting, um, uh, and, it, and it makes it hard for those of us who have grown up in a world conditioned by that kind of political theory and political philosophy to recognize people like Vladimir Putin for what they are. I said I was going to let you go, but I'm going to pull on one more string based on what you just said. And that's and this also gets back to what Willer Newell was saying, which is to the extent that Putin has a, a philosophy and one can group it under fascism, it also draws heavily on a, on a particular Russian, I guess you'd say philosopher, I guess you have to, called Alexander Dugin. And he talks about his ideology as Eurasianist national Bolshevism. Now, here's two things I want to say about that and then let, let you comment. One is, but uh, what he says is that uh, this ideology involves Eurasianism, Dugin, Putin, making an alliance with radical Islam, not because they believe it, but because it's an alliance of convenience and useful. That's why the Islamic Republic of Iran can be a junior partner to Russia and China in this, what what, what Waller Newell calls the the anti-democratic league that wants to overthrow America and take over the world. And that's the important point. People think, well, it's all regional, isn't it? I mean, you know, the Solomon Islands, who cares if China takes over the Solomon Islands and Ukraine? What do we care about that? We got people pouring over our southern border. What do we care about the Ukrainian border? But Dugan, and this is a tweet that came out from him just in recent days, he's demanding total mobilization against Ukraine, against NATO, and against what he calls the liberal Nazi world order. And again, it's not because he opposes Nazis, if we should make this clear, it's because World War II was a fight from a, was Russia's great heroic fight against Nazism, which was not all that different from Stalinist communism. And so when you use that word, you're saying this is the enemy. And so America is liberal Nazi. Ukraine is liberal Nazi. Germany is liberal Nazi. That's been said very specifically. They're still Nazi. There are various uh, Putin mouthpieces saying, you know, not only didn't the first Cold War end, 
World War II is still ongoing because there's still Nazism in the world, like in Ukraine, like in Germany, and America and NATO are backing it. And that's why we have to fight them with everything we have. And if that means we sacrifice our standard of living, we sacrifice our standard of living. Uh, just as Ayatollah Khomeini said, this revolution is not about the price of watermelon. Just as Xi Jinping is quoting Mao now saying, if we have to ruin the society to rebuild it, so be it. That's where our, our adversaries are right now. And I think very few people in America and very few people in the White House understand any of what I just said. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's the it's the twilight struggle against the liberals for power and for a politics that is whole and kind of religious in its wholeness. You know, this is this is what, of course, ties together the the jihadis and the Russians and the the Chinese communists. I mean, these are all coalitions that would eventually collapse if they were actually uh, if, if they're able to defeat their enemies and, and were to turn on one another. I mean, they're not they're not coherent with one another. And they probably know that. Of course, they do. They of probably course, know. Of that. course, they do. Of course, they do. But um uh, they like like fascists everywhere and at all times um, have the common enemy. I mean, specifically of the United States and the West, but more broadly of of liberalism, of the modern political of modernity. It is modernity that separates religion from politics. It is modernity that says our politics are going to be about defending certain certain rights, and after that, um, you, the individual with a certain amount of dignity. You will go about your life and worship in the way that you please and so forth and so on. Um, it's a very powerful form of politics. It has made America and the West what, what we are, um, but it does, um, it, it, it does um, uh, leave, it leaves a, a, a space. It, it leaves a kind of desire for a kind of wholeness and for a return to a kind of politics that is religious, that brings everything together, that makes you feel as though you are living a life of purpose. You're not a bourgeois shopkeeper you know, uh, investing in your 401k, your life, your life means something you were fighting for, for God, you were fighting for, for, for Russia, you were fighting for some sort of supernatural cause. Um, uh, and you were living your life in accordance with the politics that grants you meaning. I mean, these are, these are the ingredients of totalitarianism. Um, uh, and they all know who to hate and they all know who to blame, which is, which is the liberalism that made this pattern of politics hard to, um, hard to find, uh, hard to find in the world in the 21st century. It's a good thing that it's hard to find, but it, it does seem to want to come back. Aaron McLean, I knew I'd have a great time talking with you. This has been fascinating. It's a wonderful conversation. I hope to get to see you more as we go into this post, uh, but I hope it's the post-pandemic period and things start to open up. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for all the work you do. Thanks for your service. Um, in the past and the future. And um, I'll hope to talk to you again very soon. Cliff, it was a delight. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all of you who joined us in this conversation today here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.